This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Happy Road. So, this is in the book of Acts. Paul has spent a good deal of time in Ephesians, in Ephesus, and then he is uh, actually still on his journey to Rome, and he's swinging back through uh, Miletus, and he calls for the uh, elders of Ephesus to come and meet him, because he has a burden to share with them. And this is a piece of that burden. It's a very, very fascinating uh, message that he gives to the elders of Ephesus. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those that, who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. So Paul is giving himself as a living testimony of how a leader ought to work. He's basically saying, look, I didn't go after your money. I wasn't leading you so I could get something. I was leading you so that I could give you something. So yes, you know, you yourselves know that these hands, speaking of his own hands, have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. The same guy teaches that a workman is worthy of his hire. But he still chose to go the higher road and say, I'll even work to help those that are with me. These own hands have been willing to give instead of just receive. And for those, and I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Nathan and I were preparing to do something. I think it was for the alumni this week. And I asked about this scripture and I said, where was that again? Where... And what's weird is you're thinking that this line, it says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Do you know that you cannot find those exact words in the gospel accounts? They're here. And yet, if you know the teaching of Jesus, that's exactly what his teaching is. So either Paul is summarizing the entirety of Jesus' words by saying, that's what he says, let's remember that. Or these are actual words that Jesus said that didn't get put into the gospel accounts, but are still canonized. They are canonized. They are the word of God right there. But it's interesting. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The word blessed is the Greek word makarios. That word has such import. First of all, it's the same word. Blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit. Makarios. Supremely happy. Overwhelms with the joy the exuberance of life. You want that? You want to find the fullness of living? You don't find that just by receiving. You find that by giving. Makarios. You want that? This is how you get it. There is more makarios in giving than there is in receiving. Now that's profound, and I'm going to go into this because most of us are stunted in the flow of the gospel in our life. God, I need more from you. You have more to give me. I need that. And we're missing, actually, the greater makarios. We're missing that dimension of blessedness. He's saying, hey, you want, I, I built you for blessing. I built you to experience the fullness of my kingdom, but you're stunting it because you're trying to just receive instead of being a flow-through channel to give. God, give me more manna. I want more manna. What are you doing with that manna? I'm collecting it and I'm building a little storehouse of manna. What are you doing with that manna? Prepare that manna to give it. That's actually the greater blessing. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Spoken by a a man that I highly admire, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, remember the words of our Lord Jesus. So I, I think we should do that. Let's remember these words. The two parts to the gospel... When we are introducing someone to the gospel, 
what are we going to lead them to? We're going to lead them to the receptivity, to the givenness to say, will you receive him as your savior? Will you allow him into this position in your life? Will you accept? It's, it's, it's that appeal. It's basically saying they're commissioning the will of a human to respond and to say, yes, I will receive the gift of grace. I'll receive the work of the cross as my own. I will receive it. And yet, though we would say that is so extraordinary, so important, it's called the joy of salvation, there is something even greater. And that is when that same Christian says, God, you have done all this for me. Now use me. There's a greater blessing in the givenness of the Christian than even in the receptivity of the believer. It's the higher point of the gospel. The reason that you have been set free is so that you could be the giving vehicle. That is where the greatest joys come from. That is where the greatest life is found. You thought it was found in you just receiving. You get eternal life. You get this. However, there is something even greater that you were created for, and that is to be the giving vessel. When you are the one giving it, then you now find life at a greater level. So you have the receiving and the giving. Most of us are stunted. We're still focused on what we need. And we fail to realize that we are supposed to be giving and that's where the life comes from. And we're wondering why we don't have the fullness. Why we are stunted in our, even our emotional paradigm. It's because we're still looking for something for us instead of taking the little that we have and grinding it. Putting it in a pan, baking it, and giving it. And when we do that, we find that, oh, that was good. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced, I know you have. I'm just more appealing to it. I shouldn't say it that way. I know that probably every single one of us in here at some level has experienced the extraordinary effect of what takes place when you give to someone. My mom asked me to clean the kitchen all growing up. It was a chore. You ever had a chore? Chores are miserable. And because what, the reason you do a chore is because if you don't, you get in trouble. So what's the motivation? The fear of punishment. The avoidance of punishment. And who wants punishment? That's a terrible way to live your Christian life, too. Why do you do what you do? Why do you give away your pastry? Because God is asking me to. That's miserable. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. You see, my mom was gone one day, and I had this thought. Kitchen's dirty. I love my mom. I've really never done anything nice for my mom. (laughs) I should clean the kitchen. It was a novel thought. And so I began to clean the kitchen. Have you ever done something that used to be dull and mundane because it was done as a chore and now you did it as an act of love? And suddenly cleaning the kitchen, like she would always come in when I would be cleaning the kitchen and I'd go, I'm done, done. I was going to go play basketball with my buddies. And she comes in and goes, Eric, you didn't clean the sink. What? You didn't tell me. Eric, that's always a part of cleaning the kitchen. And so I, she leaves, and I get the, the rag, and I dampen the end. And I'm like, and I look for the you know, spaghetti splotches. And then she comes in. She goes, did you lift up the cookie jar and clean underneath it? You didn't ask me to do that, Eric. That is always a part of it, every single time. And we'd go through this about three or four rounds. I'd be like, Good, am I done? She's like, just get out of here, please. The difference, when I was doing it out of love, my motivation switched. And now suddenly, you don't need to ask me to deep clean, to get out there. I was probably spraying every different cleanser, you know, that there was. I didn't know what they did. <laughs> you know, dumping this thing here. It's like, <sighs> and I was so excited. I remember my brother coming in to get a glass of water. I'm like, hey, use the bathroom. This is, I'm cleaning this. <laughs> but the whole while, I had a mental grid, which was my mom coming home. The whole while, all I could see was my mom coming home, dropping her grocery bags, and then I was standing there, I'd peer around the corner like, she's like, who did this? It was relationship. And that relationship gave me energy. It gave me the ability to go even the extra mile. And I found myself lifting cookie jars and cleaning underneath without anyone asking. This motivation of love in the body of Christ is what's supposed to carry us. We don't do what we do out of a chore. We do it because we love. We love him and we love each other. And therefore we gather manna every day with that in mind. 
Not because it's a duty to get up and have a devotional time and you need to be finding something in Scripture every day, otherwise you're going to wither up and die spiritually. That isn't our motivation. Our motivation is to love Him and to love others and to give, and this is actually the testimony of the fact that we are the body of Christ. How will you know them? Because of their love for one another. They collect manna every day to give it. They do what they do to bless others instead of just to edify themselves. Uh, so just to repeat a quote that I've, that I've been thinking about a lot. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So you're saying, what's the secret to life? Well, I'm giving you, this is a secret to blessedness right there. Give. But if I give, what if I don't have? Give. Give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Charisma. So when you take the word spiritual gifts in scripture, you have pneumaticos charisma. Pneumatico is typically translated spiritual. I don't know that I like that term either. It's an adjective, but it means of the spirit. It comes from God. It's a gift that comes from God. I don't know that I like the word gift either because it triggers thoughts. Charisma comes from the root charis. It's a work of grace. It's the power of God to do. You couldn't function as a Christian without charis. The church can't function as a church without charisma. Charisma is that which the church needs to function together. And so as a result, when people get all nervous about this and they expunge it from the church, the church cannot function. So maybe one guy is functioning in his gift up in front, teaching, preaching, doing his little thing, yet everyone else is withering. We have to function in accordance with what God has given us. There has to be room to maneuver and to do it. If we don't have that, there is a stunting. It's, it's a leadership principle. The people that you are training in growing up in leadership, there is always something above them. There's room to grow that you create, but if you do not create more room to grow, they get a crook in their neck. And so one of the principles of growing up leaders, strong leaders, is you have to give them space to grow. Well, I would say one of the weaknesses of our church is that you have not had space to grow. You're in a straitjacket, and we're like, yes. And what are you doing to serve the body of Christ? <laughs> I can't do anything here. And then we we'll say, well, you do know why, because we, you could be a fumbling bumbler. And if you fumble and bumble, then you would mess the whole cleanliness of our body up. I am, that, that does fit me. I do like clean, orderly, good-smelling things. And so I want my house, and this has happened so many times, it's like so-and-so's loading the, the dishwasher. I don't know how many of you care about how your dishwasher is loaded. But for whatever reason, I think about things like that. And it bothers me when a dish is like a, a bowl is aimed upwards. Okay, that just bothers me. I don't want you loading this dishwasher, known as the church at Ellerslie, with a bowl up like that. We'll have to fix that. That's precisely the point that God is dealing in me. To say, it's okay. Even if you have to rewash it. It's okay. <laughs> and uh, I think some people call it OCD. I'm not positive. <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> Charisma. Why are we given it? Why are you given this gift? I'm going to give you the answer. It's right there on the screen. For the profit of all is what it says in Scripture. I'm going to say it differently. For the profit of everyone around you. For the benefit, for the building up, for the strengthening of everyone around you. Why did you receive that? It's so that you could give it. It wasn't so that you could just hold on to it and look at your thing, you know, your, your precious, and polish it every day and whisper sweet nothings to it. I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings, by the way. That's what mental picture. I'm thinking of Gollum. You turn into Gollum when you're like that. As opposed to the reason you were given this gift is to share it. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Paul, at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 14, which, by the way, is a very uncomfortable chapter in the Bible. I'm just forewarning you now. And at the very beginning of that, remember, 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter on love. And then, boom, we run into 1 Corinthians 14. What's the context? Love. Hey, guys, Church of Corinth, you're really messing this up. Talk about fumbling bumblers. They were fumbling bumblers. 
and they were misusing their gifts. They're spending them on themselves. It's like, hey, this is mine. I want space to use my gift. And they were messing it all up, which is why it's hard to lead a church in these things because typically what we have in Scripture as our example was the wrong example. It's, being, it's a correction. That's what Paul is doing in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's, he's correcting the body of Christ. And one of the key things he's correcting them for is misusing spiritual gifts. So as a result, I can give a great argument. Hey, we don't want to be like the church at Corinth, so let's just avoid these things at all costs. Pursue love is how Paul starts out this next stage of his argument. And desire pneumaticus charisma. Desire this. There's a command for you. I mean, you can understand pursue love. That's conservative. But desire spiritual gifts? It's like, excuse me, what am I supposed to do with that? I think you should obey it. But especially, (laughs) some of you are just like, oh, why did he stick that scripture up? But especially that you may prophesy. I didn't write that, guys. Don't kill the messenger. You're like, well, you still didn't need to choose it for your message. I know, I'm having fun doing it, though. But especially that you may prophesy. So many of you know that I've, I, I've spoken on this before, tongues, prophecy, a different context. But the way that I look at tongues, because that's what 1 Corinthians 14 is going to be about. It's about tongues and prophecy. And it's basically, in the context of love, going to say, guys, tongues does not build up anyone. It does not edify. It does not strengthen those around you. It's not meant for that. However, prophecy is meant to build up. So, therefore, when you are together, tongues is not what we're doing. We're prophesying. Of course, some of you are like, that didn't help me, Eric. I mean, I'm happy that you're sort of putting a little rain on the tongue there. But what about the prophecy? All you're doing is opening up. Now people are going to be going berserk. So I call that a first sound, tongues, okay? It's, it's a mystery. It's unknown. This is how Paul describes it. But a genuine supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of us wonder about that. Have you ever been around people that fake tongues? Of course, I don't even know that they know they're faking tongues. Have you ever had it where you go to some, something or some conference, some, it's usually bring people into the side room, and they'll say, repeat after me, and they'll have some kind of repetition thing. And then everyone's speaking the same unknown tongue. It all sounds strangely, vaguely familiar. They all are saying the same thing over and over again and calling it spiritual. And I would say, that, that is completely absurd. Okay, that's my opinion on it. I think it's completely absurd. If it's not supernatural, don't do it. If you don't have a tongue, don't worry about it. Okay, but if God gives you a tongue, then I'm going to talk to you about how to use it. Okay, that's actually one of the things I'd like to describe. But I'm not interested in fake. And I think there's quite a few of you in here that aren't interested in fake either. But I'm very open, even though it's uncomfortable, to real. But what we know about tongues is that it's a mystery. It's unknown. Do you know what the Old Testament is like the first sound? You know what the, first, the Old Testament to even the Jewish rabbis? They say it's a mystery. It's a mystery about this Messiah. We know he's coming, but we don't know when. We don't know who. And we, we just know he's born in Bethlehem. And who. They thought, the Jewish rabbis thought there would be two Messiahs. They could not comprehend how one man could fulfill both and all these aspects of his messiahship. They didn't understand it. It was unknown. It spoke their language, yes, but it didn't speak clearly to them because it was spiritually discerned. What's funny is you have the interpretation. You have a second sound. It's a clear word of prophecy. His name is Jesus. By the way, let me say that again. Jesus is the clear word of prophecy. When you are giving prophecy, what are you doing? You're giving a clear word of Jesus. That's what you're doing. And so as a result, you could call what I'm doing right now prophecy. Now, most of you are like, that's weird. That just made this whole service feel weird. That's because we have an odd conception of what prophecy is. I would like us to enter into this discussion and get the weirdness out of it so that we can function as a body. So, Listen to what Paul says. This is the next verse. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. 
He who gathers manna and brings it into his home, well, you've edified yourself. However, he who shares that manna in a pastry form with everyone around him, now that is what we're after. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. This is in the context of love. You can edify yourself and there's nothing wrong with that. However, there's a greater purpose for why you have what you have. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. That's Paul talking. Do not forbid to speak with tongues. Paul is not against tongues. It's very important to note, and he makes it clear in and through his argument in 1 Corinthians 14. What he's clarifying is tongues does not edify the body. And since tongues does not edify the body, why would you do it in the body? It's not going to edify anyone. They have no clue what you're talking about. So what you need is a clear word. The second sound, prophecy. It's clear, it's understood, it's a higher and more important working of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to emphasize this. It's a higher and more important working of the Holy Spirit. There are entire denominations that are divided over the issue of tongues. Not making this up. Some of you have grown up in them, maybe. In fact, they would say, they, their division point is, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. If you're truly baptized in the Holy Spirit, you would speak in tongues. And I would say the chief evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is love. If we miss that and we focus on a smaller issue like tongues and we miss the chief fruit of what God births in a person, you cannot love in your first old man state. Love is a supernatural work and is the chief evidence that a man or a woman has been set free by Jesus Christ. So when we make tongues the priority and we divide over it, we're no better than Corinth. That's exactly what they were doing. The second sound is a more important work. There are pastors on our leadership team that do not speak in tongues, but they prophesy. What's more important? Should I try and get them to speak in tongues? Or should I say, well, they're doing a greater work. They show love for the body. Hey, I'm behind this. In other words... The point isn't to get rid of tongues, it's to recognize that there's something greater. I am, people don't know what to call our church. Are we charismatic? People that are charismatic are like, no, we are not charismatic. Are we Pentecostal? Are we reformed? Are, I mean, what, what are we? I just say we're Christians. That's all I want to be. I'm not after any title. In fact, I try and avoid those titles like the plague. I just believe what the word of God says and I want us to function in accordance with it. I know things have been abused, but I also am willing to submit to the scripture and say, but God, teach us. Teach us. We want to humble ourselves and be malleable to you and whatever the end result is, I want us all to be looking at each other going, well, it's God. No matter what background we have. It might be different. The charismatics in here are going to say, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be done. It's supposed to be look like this. Probably won't. In fact, that's sort of my hope, is that it doesn't look like the charismatic thing. But at the same time, I'm always having to say, God, even if, even if you want it to look like that, I'm open. So th there's the inner battle inside of Eric. Desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He who prophesies edifies the church. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church... When we are together, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. When I'm together, I want to give, I want to serve, I want to build up. I'm not coming with a tongue, I'm coming with clear words so that I can build you up, so that I can give to you. I can come up to you and I could say, I just have a burden to share something with you. And then I could speak in a foreign language to you and go, thank you. It's very encouraging. And it actually would do no benefit to you other than sound very spiritual and very impressive. However, what edifies, and is very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, is a clear word. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do you desire earnestly to prophesy? Now, I know, especially since 1 Corinthians 13, I had a message a few weeks ago, it was called The Shadow Kingdom, on cessationism. The, the doctrine of like, well, all of this has ceased, you know, because the perfect is coming. People say, well, the perfect is the Bible. And now that the New Testament is completed, then all this has ceased. And my argument in that message was that the perfect, when you look at the Old Testament, you know that things were going to cease. They have the law, they have sacrifices, they have the temple, they have the tabernacle. They have all sorts of things. 
And when the perfect comes, it will cease. Jesus was the perfect. He was that which caused it to cease. It was his perfect life when it came that altered the course of covenantal history. And he entered us into a new way of living, a new kingdom. So, that's always been the pattern. It's a person. When Jesus comes, the old passes away. Well, now we're in a new system. It's called the body of Christ. And if the perfect is just the text of scripture, we're in trouble, guys. Because now we have no power to function. We have no spiritual gifts, no charisma to do this thing. We're in trouble. That's why the way you handle 1 Corinthians 13 is very, very important to recognize we still need power to do this. I can't do it in my own strength. I need charisma to be able to do it. And so that's the context here. Earnestly desire, earnestly, desire earnestly to prophesy. I'm not saying desire earnestly to be a kook. Desire earnestly to say weird things. I'm saying desire earnestly to be one that gives clarity to the body of Christ and introduces people to Jesus. That edifies, that encourages, that strengthens those around you with what you speak with your mouth. Desire that. The dangerous twist. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand. So here's Peter. Can you just imagine? It's like, Paul taught us this. And he's like, oh boy. For whatever reason, even in the scripture itself, it's clear that what Paul writes has been twisted. And that he writes things that are hard to understand. Guess what? I'm going to give you a classic illustration of that today, and it's called 1 Corinthians 14. In fact, as sort of an epicenter of Paul's entire argument, I would say that this likely is the very thing that Peter is referring to, is that this whole issue of order in the church, how it's supposed to function, how women are supposed to be in their their role in it, by the way, it's all in this context, I mean, this is sticky stuff in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Untaught and unstable people twist Paul's words. Paul did say them. It is the word of God. However, if untaught and unstable people get them first and twist them, what happens to the rest of us? Yeah, I'm going to stay away from that. A.W. Tozier said... One of the great ploys of the devil is to get people to back into their belief system. He distorts something and perverts it over here, and then we're like, whoa, okay, I'm going to stay away from that. That's one of the number one ploys that the devil wields against us is he distorts truth and says, oh, I don't want to be one of those guys. I don't want to be one of those ones that are associated with that. Can you think of a better illustration for those of us that would be classically understood as conservative, dignified, moral, upstanding sorts. What would be one of the best illustrations of that in our modern day? But this. This is one of those crazy, wild-haired sort of topics. It's like, yeah, I don't want to be one of those. Yeah, you know, I believe in the power of God, but not, you know, whatever that is. We need to be very careful not to allow the devil to take hostage the truth of Jesus Christ. This doesn't belong to him. Let's get his talons off of it. This is God's territory. The effects of untaught and unstable people twisting. What happens? Well, a good portion of even this church really struggle with dealing with these topics. Why? Because untaught and unstable people have twisted them. And so how do we gain back a place in the body of Christ for health, for healthy movement, for healthy expectation of what God wants to do in us? So I'm going to introduce you to a guy. His name is Eric Ludy. Uh, he's one guy. He's not the full representation of every individual here. He's just one. And he has one pair of glasses. Eric, I'm going to, you know, if I'm wearing them, and that's typically what I preach at. If I only can see life through one you know, gaze, that's mine. I always try and get inside of everyone else's shoes. But really, I've only ever lived in one body. Isn't that a fascinating thought? I've only had one life experience. I've ne- I didn't live your life. And so this is one guy's perspective on this topic, and I've been in the middle. I've traveled all over the world. I've been in every kind of church imaginable. I have been around some of the weirdest behaviors that probably have ever existed in the church of Jesus Christ, and I was in the room. 
I mean, I have some bizarre stories that I could tell. That's not what this message is on, even though some of you are like, oh, that'd be fun. It's not fun. I, this has disturbed me at the deepest levels. I have had such a difficult time in my life. There was a whole season of my life I couldn't even say the words Holy Spirit. That's how deep the trauma was in my life. And I remember God working in me. It was through A.W. Tozier, actually. He wrote a book called The Divine Conquest. And he basically brought me back and said, don't let the devil take the Holy Spirit away from you. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember the first time I was in front of an audience and I used the word Holy Spirit outside of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we bless you. That type of thing. I I could do it in that context. But to actually say the words Holy Spirit with a straight face as if I I mean it, it was was a big moment for me. I remember writing it down in my notes and it's like, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say, Holy Spirit. I did. I did. That was quite a few years ago now. Now I just say it as if it's second nature. I love the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows me Jesus. The Holy Spirit corrects Eric Ludi so that Jesus is more clearly seen inside of Eric Ludi. I, I wouldn't even know Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not my focus. You, won't, you don't see me just preaching on the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's focus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's focus is Jesus. So therefore, if the Holy Spirit has rule and reign in this church, what's he going to show? Jesus not himself. So, if the Holy Spirit is going to have access to us to give us gifts, what's the primary purpose? To show and reveal Jesus here. Now, I can buy into that. So this is Eric Liddy, one guy with one pair of glasses. I'm going to give you some formative facts. Some of these might shock you. This will be sort of fun to see how you're... I, I can't look at you in this at the same time, though. Formative fact number one, I have experienced a lot of weird stuff in the category of tongues. Formative fact number two, weird enough stuff, mind you, that I've often wished that I could just be a cessationist and call it all heresy. That would be a lot easier. Formative fact number three, I personally speak in tongues and have done so for about 34 years of my life. I wanted to get your facial expression on that one. See, some of you actually think I'm against tongues because of how I speak about it. It's the first sound. It's, it's, not, it's not even clear. Why, we're not going to bring that into our body. What, what's the good of trucking that in? I've spoken in tongues for probably over this, but this is my conservative estimate, 34 years. Formative fact number four, I've personally been greatly impacted by speaking in tongues, and God has worked through tongues in my life in a powerful way. Formative fact number five, I personally believe that speaking in tongues is both a valid spiritual experience underlaid credibly by the word of scripture and a tremendously beneficial experience that is worth desiring and asking for from the Holy Spirit. Formative fact number six, I believe 1 Corinthians 14 is the word of God and that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing it. Therefore, in light of all these formative facts and recognizing that it is reasonable to conclude otherwise than me on these challenging matters, I believe that speaking in tongues is not intended by God as a corporate operation and that its use in the public gatherings of the body of Christ is to be guarded against in order to maintain health and order. Isn't that a funny statement from someone who's spoken in tongues for over 34 years? It's like, I don't believe it's meant for in here. However, I believe that prophesying is to be pursued. So for some of you, you're like, whoo, when I got to the tongue statement, and then when I got to this one, you're like, oh, no! What exactly is prophesying? A quick and necessary clarification. I would rather use the Greek word instead of prophesying because I don't, it's just that word just comes with baggage. Prophetuyo. It just sounds safer, doesn't it, guys? This is, what, this is what we are called to do. This is what we're supposed to earnestly desire. Now, I can earnestly desire prophetuyo. I don't know that I want to earnestly desire to prophesy. So I'm going to go back to the Greek word. For any of you that are like me, I'm going to help you here by giving you a Greek word to hang out on. So what is prophetuyo? This is my fumbling, bumbling way of articulating because it's not the easiest thing in scripture to know how to describe. In the Old Testament, you have prophets. And so a lot of people drag that into the New Testament. And they're like, yeah, that must be what it's like today. It's not the exact same any more than we still offer sacrifices. We, guess what? Well, but we do. We offer sacrifices in the New Testament, but they're different than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. There's a conversion through the blood of Christ in so many different ways, and though we st- there's a temple in the Old Testament, there's a temple in the New Testament, however, it's a very different sort of temple. Same thing, but it's a translation into a new environment, a new kingdom pattern. 
And so how does prophecy translate from old into new? It's the verbal giving of the body of Christ one unto another. So I receive something from God, and I give it to you. Sometimes that's just encouragement. I just want you to know that, you know, I love you, and uh, I just deeply appreciate what God's doing in your life. And some of you go, oh, that's boring. That's not prophecy. It's the verbal giving of the body of Christ one unto the other. In other words, I'm going to say a hug is not prophecy, though it is very good. I'm going to say prophecy has something to do with communication. It has something to do with using this tongue to speak. Because when Paul is talking about it, he's contrasting it with unknown tongues. He's saying that doesn't edify, this does. And it's the use of this tongue. The tongue can be used to speak mysteries and unknown things, and it can be used to speak things that edify and build up others. Tongue. A verbal form of serving, washing feet, and blessing others. Oh, I really want to serve people. This is how you do it. It's called prophecy. This is the tool that God has given us to be able to build up and strengthen others. It has all sorts of applications. It's not just one thing, and I think that's where we stumble. We think it means getting up in front of the church and speaking something. That, it could be, but that's one element of how it could be used. Speaking to others the love burden that God places inside. So last week I called it the burden. This week I'm going to call it the love burden because it's like that pastry. Have you ever had it where you just feel something for other people? It's, it's, it's deep. It's acute. It's, it's like you want to give them a hug. You want to cheer them up somehow. You want, what is that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what we're talking about. So what God is wanting to do, now there's different things that he could have you do. He could have you write a note. He could have you give an anonymous gift to them. He could have you practically come and serve them in some uh, faculty. At the same time, he could say, encourage them, strengthen them. He could give you insight into their life. Have you ever had it where you're talking with someone who's like, how do you know that? I don't know how I know that, but I know that. Have you ever had it where you know someone's hurting, yet everything on the outside doesn't show that they're hurting? And yet you don't even think through the fact that you shouldn't know that they're hurting. You just know they're hurting. Why do you know that they're hurting? Because the Holy Spirit wants you to hurt with them. That's the love burden. And so therefore, God is always doing these things. You don't need to make them all mystical and weird. This is just how the Holy Spirit, if he lives inside of you, guess what? He has your heart. He has your mind. And as a result, he will press, he'll indent, he'll put impressions in, and I call them burdens. And then as a result, the expression of that burden, the articulation of that burden, which gets sharper and sharper with age, just like painting does for a child. If you never paint in your life and you get a a brush and start painting, it stinks. But as you begin to express that which is inside of you, there's a coordination between that one side of you in expression unto a paintbrush. And it becomes more and more beautiful, more and more excellent. And the same thing is true with taking that love burden and expressing it. When you first do it, it might feel fumbling, bumbling. But guess what? If we actually begin to paint, you become better at this. And the Holy Spirit trains you how to do this so that you can give this love, serve this way. If, if I were to try and make a pastry today, I went home and one of you gave me a recipe for flan. And uh, Beth, are you going to give me that recipe? Uh, And so I went home and I cooked it. I have a hunch it wouldn't be as good as Beth Garcia's flan because she grew up making flan. Okay, now, would I be at fault because my flan wasn't as good as Beth Garcia's? No. In fact, you should look at me and say, that's good, Eric. Okay, it's not very good tasting, but it's, I'm really happy that you tried to make the flan. Do you mind if I don't eat your flan and I eat Beth's instead? However, the exercise of Eric making the flan is important. And if Eric only watches someone else make flan and he never tries it himself, guess what? I will always stink at making flan. And if you never express your love burden, if you never give to the body what God is doing inside of you, it will always be a little kid scribble. But if we as the body begin to exercise these things with love, even the acceptance of the fact that it will not be perfect which is hard for the guy on the stage right now. I want it to be perfect. And yet, that's a misnomer in parenting, and then it's a misnomer in raising, a, raising up a church. 
If you expect your children to be perfect, you will be a bad parent. If you invite them into a perfecting process, that's different. But when you demand of them perfection every time they perform, no one could ever reach that standard. And the same is true in leading the church of Jesus Christ. Until you guys are perfect, we can't do this. Until you guys have mastered this, well, then we can't do this. Well, guess what? We will never do this. Uh, We were accused, I think it's by someone who's sitting here in this audience holding a baby right now, of being a non-profit organization. And profit was spelled (laughs) P-R-O-P-H-E-T. That's that's Ellerslie humor. Uh, I don't want to be that sort of a non-profit organization. It's hard for me to say, Eric, sir, are you a profit organization? It's like, ah, yes. Yes, we are. Ah, We are. We're a profit organization, for profit. We're for profits organization. What does 1 Corinthians 14 say about it? This is actually not 1 Corinthians, it is 1 Corinthians 14, but it's a summary of what it says about profituyo. Profituyo edifies the church, exhorts the church, and comforts the church. So if you want to understand what Paul teaches about prophecy, here it is. Prophet to you edifies the church. Prophet to you is equivalent to revealing something hidden, imparting knowledge, and or instructing. Prophet to you offers words easy to understand. Prophet to you is speaking with understanding. Prophet to you matures the understanding of the body of Christ. Prophet to you is given by God to, to believers for believers. But prophet to you, properly used in and amongst the body of Christ, can actually work to convince an unbeliever of the realities of God and convict them of their sin. It has the ability to reveal secrets of hearts and move them to worship God. Prophetio can have varying forms in how it verbally comes forth in the church, in and through singing, in and through teaching, in and through revealing hidden things, and in and through interpretation of unknown tongues. That's just what it says. In other words, these are all the clear forms of communication. So technically, you could be singing and prophesying. Okay, you follow me? That's like, for some of us, it's just like smoke starts coming out of our ears because we have one idea of what this means, and that means the prophet Micah coming up and saying, thus saith the Lord. And yet, what I'm appealing to you to understand is that's not how it works today. Each one of us is meant to function as a voice piece, as a mouthpiece of what God is doing. To encourage one another, to exhort one another, to edify one another, even to correct one another. We are to speak unto one another what the Holy Spirit is working. That comes from our study of Scripture and and then us teaching it. That comes from what God is doing and we just have to sing a song and then everyone else is moved the same way. I don't know how to define it in the full. I think it's just a lot grander than we realize. And Prophet to you enables believers to learn and it supplies encouragement. In summary, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What we see is Paul teaches on love and then we move into 1 Corinthians 14 and he says, guys, if you really want to love, your tongue is not how you love. Your unknown tongue that you're so proud of, that's not how you love. Now there's nothing against tongues is what Paul says. Look, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but it edifies me. If I'm in the church, I desire even five words that would edify someone else than 10,000 that just edify me. You see, this is about the church, and that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. His argument is not for tongues, against tongues, for prophecy, against prophecy. His argument is for love. Saying, guys, you want to know how to function? You take what God has given you, and you give it. That's what Paul is talking about. The context is love. How do we love one another? We give to one another. How do we give to one another? What do you have to give? You have a pneumaticos charisma. You're like, I do? I have a pneumaticos charisma? Yeah. And we've talked about this in the past. It seems that Timothy received his pneumaticos charisma through the laying on the hands of the eldership. And so I've I've pondered that. It's like, is there something we're supposed to do in here as far as laying hands on people and saying, Lord... Give them a pneumaticos charisma. It's not something I give. But Paul had a pneumaticos charisma and he said to the church at Rome, he's like, oh, I want to get to you guys so I can give you something. I want to give you a pneumaticos charisma. Why doesn't he just pray, Lord, way out in Rome, could you give them a pneumaticos charisma? There seems to be something personal 
in this process. In other words, I have a pastry I want to give you. And the church at Rome could say, why don't you just pray that that pastry materializes here in Rome? Paul's saying, I have it here. That's not how pastries work. I have to actually get to Rome and hand it to you. Hey, I didn't write this stuff. I'm just saying this is how it works in scripture. So does God give me a pastry so I can give it to you? I think so. But God also gives you a pastry so that you can give it. We need to understand these things and then exercise them. But we need to remember this. Some of you are feeling weak today and you're like, oh, if people would just notice me. If people would just give to me. I need something. No one in this church seems to ever recognize that I need something. There's something better. Start giving. Start serving. Start turning outward with what you have. If all you have is two pennies, give those two pennies. Share them. and You'll see them multiply. You'll have more to give. The better part of the gospel, giving up your life. So think about this. What's the gospel? Jesus gave up his life for us. I'm going to give you even the better part. Now you can give up your life. He has saved you. He's rescued you from self. He's rescued you from your bondage of sin so that now you can be a vessel of giving, empowered by him himself. It's not to diminish what he has given you. It's to celebrate what he has given you. But there's something more than just your personal salvation. It's the fact that he desires to use you to change the world around you, to love. So this is the happiest road. You give up your life, you serve, you turn outward. This is the happiest road. That's why it's more blessed. It's makarios. You're supremely happy this way. It's the brightest route. It's the prettiest way. You ever, you know, there's different ways to get uh, to Winter Park. And uh, some of you know the two different ways. And uh, one of them is just far more beautiful. And it's not to diminish going up I-70. It's not to diminish uh, going over that pass. I don't remember what pass that is. But it's to say there's a better way. And what was it? A Trail Ridge Road? But it is the prettiest way. Have you ever, if you've ever gone on that road, all you're doing the whole while is like, whoa, whoa. And that's exactly what it's like to give. Whoa, this is so much better. This is the better way. It's the most fragrant, flower-laden path through this nettlesome world. How are you going to get to the other side? Go this way. How is this church going to function? Let's go this way. Let's turn outward. Let's give to each other. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may, and you know what it's supposed to be there. It says prophesy. Now, I'm going to give you my understanding of prophecy right here. Okay? To be a placeholder as we begin to develop this. Because when you hear the word prophecy, you think standing up and having an Old Testament robe on and saying something. And I'm saying that it doesn't need to be that mentality towards it. It is supernatural. It is a work of grace. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may give to everyone around you what God has given you. God wants to give you something. What are you going to do with it? You need to give it. The manifestation of the Spirit is for the profit of all. The reason you are receiving from God is so that you can give it. If you just stunt that and say, mine, or I'm not going to be one of those weird people that gives, you start giving and the body of Christ will be edified, will be built up. Your initial scribblings and drawings and your paintings might not look so hot. There could be some fumbling bumblings in here. And though I'm not a fan of fumbling bumbling, I am a fan of us growing up unto a full maturity. And as far as I can tell, that's the only way it's going to happen is when all of us submit to the word of God, we submit to the spirit of God, and we all say, this isn't just on 5% of this body to lead us. It's up to all of us to do what we're supposed to be doing. And then it's up to the leadership to say, and we will let the body of Christ begin to function. Now, how that works is still part of what we are exploring as a leadership, what this looks like, so we don't go off the rails and twist Paul's words. But at the same time, that's our heartbeat. We desire to see 100% involvement in this church. Not 5%, 100%. And that can only happen when all of us say, I'm ready to be a giver, not just a receiver. I'm ready to be a giver. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. 
You could say whoever will keep his pneumaticos charisma to himself will lose it. And whoever, whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Principle of the kingdom. When Paul is referring to the fact that Jesus said, blessed are those who give, and more blessed are those who give than those that receive, it's very possible that Paul is simply rephrasing this exact concept. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. You want to function as a church of Jesus Christ? Nothing can be selfish here. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Don't just pray in tongues and edify yourself, but consider the interests of others. Prophesy. I know, a little awkward. But also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And of course, those of you that know Philippians 2 know it's going to now enunciate how Christ lived. He took the high place and came low. Every one of us in here, this is the mindset we're supposed to have. We look at everyone around us as royalty, and we're their servant. If every one of us arrived here at church thinking of everyone else as higher than ourselves, as more important than ourselves, not needy to have all those people around us see us, but to say it is my privilege to serve and wash feet, that is the better way. And whoever takes the lowest place is the happiest. And could you imagine we're fighting for the lowest place? I'm washing your feet, and then someone comes up and starts washing mine. I'm like, hey, you can't get lower than me. And then, you know, we're trying, and we're like, then I run around the circle, get to the other person, wash their feet. If we start competing to have the lowest place, I think we will be a happy, happy church. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.